What's up, guys? It's me, Heather, back with another episode of Strike Boat, a novel about freedom. My novel, which I am podcasting for free as an audiobook. Um, today is February 3rd, 2022, and I'm seeing that internationally the Canadian flag is being used as a symbol of freedom. And I just can't describe the sense of pride that instills in me. Um, We are at an interesting time in history, that is for sure. Um, In today's episode of Ways My Novel is Paralleling Reality, we are going to get into the amassing of large crowds and cancel culture and allegations of racism. And it is just unreal, the um, irony to me. I can't, I can't even, so I wrote the draft draft one of this novel, which I'm reading to you between 2012 and 2016, and the circumstances which have led me to this moment in time to be actually now reading it out as a podcast have been, you know, 10 years in the making. And bizarrely, as I'm just coming to this point in time, because of my own independent process, it's just so strange to me that the real-life circumstances here in Canada are paralleling the events in my novel so strongly, but that is what's happening. And uh, with that, I do have a long chapter to read today, so I will get started. And just a heads up that I may break this chapter into two sessions as we go along, because I do have the kids home today. Um, We're having a snow day and it could get loud. I'm not sure. I apologize in advance for any thumping that you hear in the background. Okay, with that, we will get started on Chapter 17, Assembly. Jenna watched the sea of people getting closer. It felt unreal, as though it was happening to someone else or in a movie, but the throng of people was headed straight for her. There was a banner that read, No New Normal, in the front. Jenna caught the strains of what they sang. It was a rendition of Give Peace a Chance that seemed to, for the most part, stick to repetitions of the chorus. There were other signs, too. Jenna noticed Black Lives Matter and Defund the Police signs, No Planet B signs, LGBTQ signs, and bizarrely, signs that read, STEM is racist and cancel academia. She cocked her head at that one, trying to make sense of it and coming up empty. If what the slideshow said was going to happen came true, hell, if the climate crisis was any indication, this generation would need STEM and academia more than ever because it would be more important than ever to find solutions. And for that, you needed science. She gave up trying to make sense of it and turned to look for individual faces from among the masses. She caught sight of a pair of arms waving at her wildly and squinted hard enough to make out Deb Hathaway at the head of the pack. Beside her was Vic Paul, also waving, and a grin broke over Jenna's face. The cavalry had arrived, indeed. Lodi James was still beside her. Looks like they got the plant shut down, all right? Jenna nodded. She was just about to answer when she caught the sound of rotor blades coming from the east. She turned her head, another helicopter. Her expression hardened, a vertical frown line appearing between her brows. Lodi leaned towards her. It's not the one that shot at us, he said. 
She stole a quick look at his face. Her fingers rose to pat at the wound at her temple, and she smiled weakly in return. Sorry, but when you've been attacked from a helicopter once in a day, you tend to view all others with suspicion, she said. A squeak of borderline hysterical laughter escaped her lips. She clapped a hand over her mouth, embarrassed, and then they both grinned. The incoming helicopter touched down in the expansive front lawn of the building, and after a moment, they watched a well-dressed, dark-haired man emerge, followed by a red-headed man who seemed to be wearing the attire of a night watchman. The dark-haired man assessed the scene. His eyes grazed the approaching throng, then he turned to take in the small group of people waiting to receive them in front of the municipal building, Jenna and her friends, who stood in a little cluster. Recognition dawned in the dark-haired man's eyes when he caught sight of Jenna's face. Eyeing the advancing crowd again, he altered course to beat them, heading her way and dragging the other man along behind him. You must be Mayor Walters, the dark-haired man began, striding up to her and sticking out his hand. I'm Anderson Arthur. I'm the guy that compiled the slideshow that you're broadcasting. Jenna arched an eyebrow in surprise. She stared hard at him for a moment and then slowly stuck her hand out to shake his. The vigorous pumping that he gave her hand restored her, and she blinked a time or two to clear her head. You're the one who wrote the slideshow? He nodded. The frown was back on her forehead, and she cocked her head to one side. You're the one that called Jay earlier, she said softly. Your flag. You were with them when they shot Lloyd Preston. So what are you doing here? I've defected, Anderson told her, laughing awkwardly. He looked down at his shoes for a moment and then brushed a hand backwards through his hair. And as he did, the fringe of his bangs caught the wind. They fluffed briefly in the air before settling back into place. His eyes were bright and alive, and his dimples flashed as he looked at the swarm of people. The first of them were just getting to the parking lot. They'd be making it to Jenna any second. Anderson sped up his words. Look, it's been a crazy day, all right? I made that presentation this morning thinking that they'd do something, you know? I thought that once they saw the truth and realized that they couldn't get away with it any longer, they'd act. I thought they'd want to hear ideas I had, suggestions as to what to do about it, but they didn't. I pleaded with them to go to the authorities, to tell the public, to issue the evacuation order, but they wouldn't. Preston tried to go to bat for me, but Cochran shot him. I figured that was when Cynthia Jennings keyed in the wrong email. You're Genwall 313, right? Jenna nodded. So that's what happened? A knee-jerk reaction to a murder started all of this? He shrugged, and she shook her, she shook her head, marveling. Still, why the little boy grin? No offense, Mr. Arthur, Anderson Arthur. Right, Mr. Arthur then. Look, no offense, but you look like the cat that swallowed the canary. Why are you so, so upbeat then, if it all went so badly? Anderson chewed his lip for a second, searching her eyes, and when he spoke, he gestured at the people who by now were all around them. Mayor Walters, look behind you. I may not have gotten anywhere with Cochrane, but the message got through just the same, thanks to you and your friends. Oh, that reminds me. Where's the IT guy, Jay Marksman? I'd like to meet him. Anyways, thanks to you, my message got through. I was watching the coverage on CBC. A lot of people did get off the Bruce. They're still evacuating what's left of it. We're saving lives right now because of you. 
you took a chance. You believed what you read and you didn't back down to their threats. His eyes widened and suddenly the joy was gone out of his face in a rush. He swiveled his head side to side, darting a glance in all directions. And this time when he spoke to her, she saw that there was genuine panic in his eyes. Is Doucette here? He gulped as he spoke, his eyes reduced to a breathy whisper. The fox, I heard they sent him down here to deal with, with me, Jenna told him firmly, holding his gaze with her own. She lifted up her hair to display the blood-soaked gauze that Mary had applied to her temple. He tried. He was, look, we'll have to finish this conversation later, okay? He's gone now, but there are people arriving that are, require my attention. The exuberant crowd noise almost canceled out what he said next. Almost. He'll be back, Jenna heard him say softly. A rush of greetings and cross-conversations followed as her small band met up with the throng and Jenna saw Debbie Hathaway waving her over to where a group of young women had congregated, but she reached out an arm to grasp Anderson by the sleeve. That there is Jay Marksman, she told him pointing in the direction where Marksman and Victor were busy filling each other in on all that had gone on in the interval of time since they last seen each other. Anderson looked where she was pointed. He nodded and gripped her arm. Look, there's something else we need to talk about, okay? It's speeding up. It's happening faster, even faster than what I presented in the slideshow. The subsidence is happening already. None of what we're standing on is safe. There's liquefaction going on from all the quakes sinkholes opening up. It means the shale bed's shifting. Look, it's worse than what the slideshow said, okay? The subsidence is coming sooner than we thought. Even if the Bruce has not gone down, not all the way, this land could all be underwater before nightfall. You've got to get these people out of here. There are three routes to the safe zone. Up the 401 past Peterborough, four through to Buffalo, New York, and then beyond or west to Detroit and on to Indiana. Will you tell them? She felt a weight of dread slam into her stomach and a watery sheen blurred her vision. Her face went white. The dream again, the black wave rising, bodies floating all around her. I'll do my best. We'll have a meeting soon, upstairs, okay? She whispered. Resignation firmed her lips into a line. Just let me greet these people. Give me five minutes to get my head on straight, and then we'll talk upstairs. Anderson nodded giving her a bleak smile before heading off to join up with Marksman and Vic Paul. Hearing Jenna's words, Lodi tucked his head low and darted back into the building. She watched him go, aware of a slight chill cooling the flesh of the side of her body where he'd been standing near, and she marveled that she'd noticed the warmth he'd generated only after it was gone. She wondered where he was going. She crossed her arms over her breasts and rubbed her shoulders vigorously. Deb Hathaway was beside her. You should have seen it, Jenna. It was awesome. All the workers rallied around us and Fallot acted guiltier than a pig in shit. Shut the plant down by himself. And if that's not an admission of guilt, then I don't know what is. And then us, Jenna, all the workers, and this transport truck driver named Justin. The 402 was shut down at Hickory. All the parts trucks, all the traffic backed up. And then a massive sinkhole swallowed up the highway so that no one could get through but we knew that people needed to use the 402, and so we rerouted traffic. We pushed the concrete barriers out of the way by hand. It was amazing. Crap, my back and my calves are shaking after pushing all that concrete. 
but we did it, Jenna, and we saved people. If we hadn't have done what we did, there would have been people on the bridge when it collapsed. And then when we were walking back here, all of these guys showed up. They're protesters, anti-capitalists and anti-racists and anti-homophobes, all these groups who feel disenfranchised. They say that there are others like them all over the world forming vigils, watching the live stream, sending support. These people came here because they saw the video feed from inside the council chambers. They know about the slideshow and they're here to help. They want accountability just like we do. They're on our side, Jenna. We fucking did it. Deb broke off, noticing that the smile that Jenna was giving her lacked a little something around the eyes. Jenna, hun, what is it? You're not looking so happy, girl. What's wrong? At her words, Jenna let the smile that she'd been forcing drop from off her fingers, and she hung her head briefly and pressed her hands against her face. Something about that sign, cancel, academia, being associated as an ally of hers, just did not seem right. It was all too much all of a sudden. She was just a small town mayor after all. Hell, she was a rookie mayor at that, one who hadn't even had the sense to speak with the indigenous people on whose behalf she had become outraged and run for office. And there had to be four or 5,000 people standing in front of her, waiting for her to do something or say something that would make this all make sense. There were more people here than the entire population of the town of Mount Bridges combined. And for all she knew, those residents that weren't already here were probably on their way. But the ground was going to collapse. It could happen at any moment. And here were all these people with their lives in jeopardy. Considering what Anderson had told her, people needed to get to their cars and get moving, drive, head for safety, not stand here to wait for her to say something to change things. Nothing she could say would do that. She'd signed on to be a leader, but this was more than she had bargained for. She sighed and raised her head, and this time when she looked at Debbie, no ghost of a smile touched her face. What was there was weariness. Jenna, Deb said softly, her dark shoulder-length hair swinging forwards before settling back against her denim jacket. Jenna puffed out her cheeks, her eyes heavenward, and then she met Deb's gaze head on. It's gotten worse, Deb. The guy who wrote the slideshows here, he just told me that the ground we're standing on could be all underwater by tonight. This is bigger than we thought, and I don't know what I'm going to, to say to all these people. Deb's face turned ashen, the flush of exuberance from her long march vanishing. The image of the child's lifeless body she'd seen on the news floating alongside the boat in Georgian Bay, came back to her, and she gripped Jenna's arms. They stared at each other for a moment, listening to the crowd buzz around them, knowing that the mood was going to change to one of despair as soon as Jenna had her chance to break the news she knew she had to break to them. Do you hear them, Deb? she asked. Do you hear how, how alive they sound? How youthful and full of life? How precious? Every single soul amongst them has a whole long life laid out in front of them, only if they don't get going now, right now, to safety. The opportunity to live that life will be lost. These people have the right to know what's going on, yes, and I'm going to tell it to them straight, but then they've got to leave. They've got to gather up their loved ones and hope and pray to God that they survive this night. They need, she broke off 
because rising up from the ground was another rumble, the kind that turned your stomach to acid and made the inside of your nasal cavity zing. The crowd fell silent. It was as though someone had hit a light switch. Silence fell that instantly. The inversion of sound was disorienting. It felt like going underwater as the hubbub of people's voices vanished. They heard a mournful wail from down below. The ground shook. It was not a quake, exactly, but a sensation of movement underground. As it tapered off, people began to look to Jenna. The crowd was pressing closer. She surveyed the first few rows of faces and found that each was watching her, and she had all she could do to keep the despair she felt from showing. Anderson was beside her. It's the shale bed, shifting down to fill the gaps, he said. Jenna nodded, stoic. The nearest trees around them began to shake their leaves, and Jenna felt a tremor in the bottoms of her feet before the rumble ended. In the silence that followed, Lodi James emerged from the building, coming into view slightly behind Jenna's right shoulder, and when they saw what he was carrying, the crowd erupted into raucous roaring. It was like the switch had been flipped back on again, and Jenna watched with disbelief as solemn faces lit up like Christmas trees. Speech! Speech! they called, and she turned to see he had a megaphone. He drew up beside her, and the grin that he'd been wearing faltered when he saw her face. He held the megaphone out to her with a nod of encouragement, and feeling a sense of calm descend upon her, she took it. She faced the crowd, feeling very small, but then Lodi pointed to a decorative wooden plant box made from railroad ties. It was exactly the platform she needed, she realized, and she stepped up onto it. From inside the box, the leaves of hostas pressed their gentle, cooling services against her ankles. And this time when she looked out at the crowd, she was head and shoulders above them. Speak from the heart, she heard from inside her. And as the crowd erupted into wild cheering, she took a deep breath, preparing to begin. In a well-appointed office behind a glossy cherry wood table, a rich old white man in a very conservative Navy suit listened to the voice on the other end of the phone, telling him that everything he'd ever worked for all his life had gone to shit. When the truth came out that he had known about the fracking ops and gone along with it for money, he'd be a laughingstock. Worse, he'd be criminally liable. Prime Minister Wall knew this. He felt his eyes well up with tears and brushed them angrily away. The voice on the other end was Cochran's, speaking to him from on board his jet. Look, I know it looks bad, Theodore, but you'll get over it. You'll have enough to deal with over the next few months, figuring out how to sort this disaster out. No one's going to bother trying to slow that down by demanding another election. You'll still have your office for a while. The Prime Minister of Canada looked out the window, his eyes clouded in resignation realizing that Cochran was right. Wall was not a man without his resources, and his geologists had been working on the shale disruption for months, trying to tell him that something was going on. Of course, he'd known that something was going on. He knew about the fracking, but having regularly occurring lump sum deposits accumulating in his numbered offshore accounts was a powerful motivator to obscure the truth, stymie the process, and push his top geologists away, sending them off in other directions. He'd slowed things down as much as possible, but when the truth came out, 
so would the information that he'd been aware of and profiting from the fracking operations all along. Worse, he had diverted public funds to keep his country's own geologists from investigating what was causing the disruption. The fracking was a secret he'd agreed to keep, and in return, Cochrane had pulled his strings and given Walt the privilege of his time in office. Now, in this moment, he knew the weight of the agreement that he'd made and what it really was and had been along, all along was leverage. The secret was Cochrane's leverage over him. It was the thing that made him Cochrane's puppet, and he'd never felt so much like someone's lackey than he did at this particular moment. He'd never have been elected without Cochrane. The man had so much influence. All it took was one command and every office manager, every plant supervisor, every entry-level suit that showed the slightest sign of professional ambition in every company or branch of government that was under Cochrane's sway would vote for whatever they were told to vote for because that was how it went with Cochrane Enterprises. Loyalty to the company meant that you did what Cochrane said. Only those who went along with Cochrane's wishes climbed the ladder. And so Theodore Rutherford Wall had gone along with it, stepping up to the podium with stars of unexpected glory in his eyes. And it was only now that sitting here at the tail end of his enchantment that he knew the reason why it was that people told you not to make deal with the devil because the end was never worth the means. Wall had made that deal though, and so he concluded wearily that there was nothing for it now but to go along with the man again there would be no last-minute rescue for the Prime Minister. Word about Cochrane's scheme had reached the press, and that meant Cochrane needed somebody to take the fall. When Cochrane's name came up, he'd turn around and say the PM had known about it all along, turning the attention of the scandal mongers in the media neatly onto him. Probably even make it seem like it was my idea, Wall thought, glum. He closed his eyes, and in the black behind his lids, he saw his bank statement with all of those conspicuous lump sum deposits piling up. Fuck me, he thought. Cochrane had been feeding him the paper trail that he would one day use to hang him with since day one. Look, we can't avoid the truth on this one, Theodore. They've got the email, they've got the minutes of the meeting, and they've got my name. Thanks to Lawrence fucking Fallon, they even know we shot Lloyd Preston. I'm going to have to leave the country for a while, go overseas, and you, my friend, are going to have to stick around to face the cameras. Wall's face paled. They want me to do a press conference. Now, hell, five minutes ago, the aides are waiting outside my office door this very minute to shepherd me over to the microphones. I'm going to have to go ahead and tell them it's gone soft that the land beneath southwestern Ontario, Wall's voice rose with barely constrained rage. He did his best to rein it in. He was suddenly furious, but he toned it down and carrying on, biting off each word. Has gone soft. The CN Tower, for example, Canada's iconic landmark, is no more stable than a flagpole in a sandbar he fell silent again, picturing the numbers, the millions of people who inhabited that ground. There are millions of people on that landmass, Cochrane. I'm going to have to give the order to evacuate them. I'm going to have to find the funds to accommodate them elsewhere. 
those millions and millions of Canadians who will become refugees on my watch. It was a monumental job. Wall closed his eyes. Cochrane's tone went soft, cajoling. This was the moment he'd been waiting for. What if I could help you out with that? Wall's eye snapped open. What do you mean? Look, I know that this is going to sound extreme at first, but hear me out. I've got a place up in the northern part of Ontario where people could go to. Call it a safety camp. I can house 10,000 people there, maybe more. I will gladly cover the cost of evacuing that many. I've got buses on route right now. I'll send my buses to your downtown cores. Pick up the first 10,000 people who want out of the evacuation zone. I'll take care of all the costs. I'll house them. I'll feed them at my compound for as long as it takes. There will be no cost to you, but there are conditions. Wall rolled his eyes. Of course there are, he said sarcastically. There always are with you. Do tell. They sign over their debt, mortgage payments, rent, car loans, student loans, all the money that they owe in the world before they get on the bus. They sign a paper saying all their debts are waived, taken on by flag to help them for their own good so that they don't have to worry about making payments while they're evacuees. Oh, and then before they get on the bus, there will be an injection. Wall frowned. What kind of injection? It's harmless, just a little insurance policy for me that if there are impacts of radiation from a nuclear explosion, it's just a little safety net, a tonic, if you will, to help them withstand the effects of radiation poisoning. It's eminently reasonable, really, considering I will be taking on all the costs of feeding and housing and providing medical care for them. Think of it as a vitamin booster that will help to keep them healthy, take my expenses down in caring for them. Those are my terms. 10,000 spots at the safety camp, 10,000 seats on the buses, 10,000 souls evacuated at no cost to you now, today, before the flood comes. And all you have to do is tell them to sign away their debt and take the injection. You can do that, can't you, Theodore? Well, shrunk inside his suit jacket, he looked over at the two gilded photo frames on his desk, the ones that showed the pictures of his daughters, both of them with promising careers in front of them. He thought about how they would be ruined if the truth got out about Wall was doing. Sorry. He thought about how they would be ruined if the truth got out about what Wall had been doing, how he'd been taking Cochrane's bribes and being Cochrane's puppet. He thought about how their tuition, their rent, their privilege, all had been bought and paid for with Cochrane's dirty money and how it would be his innocent daughters who would have to wear that scandal if he did not comply. Cochrane would make sure of that. It was implied. He sighed. I'll do it, he said. I don't have a choice. Somewhere over eastern Canada, Cynthia Jennings emerged from the aircraft's bathroom wearing nothing but a pair of snakeskin high-heeled shoes. She stopped in front of Cochrane's chair, hands on hips, and turned side on so he could see a little taste of her behind. Cochrane slid a hand inside his silk pajama bottoms and groped himself. That's right, you don't. There's a good chap. Do what you have to do. I'll have my people send you the logistics and the speaking points. After that, I'll be in touch.
The Prime Minister of Canada slumped, dejected, in his wingback chair, knowing his gig was over. His reputation, his family pride, his wife and kids' good name. It was all a house of cards, and it was crumpling. And in the aftermath, he saw that it had all been smoke and mirrors in the first place. His aide knocked and then hesitantly stuck her head inside the door. Sir, she said, swinging open the door and standing with her back against it, holding it open for him. Sir, they're waiting for you. The press conference is about to start. The Prime Minister of Canada squeezed the bridge of his nose until yellow points of light sparked ghostly lines across the backs of his lids, and then he heaved a sigh of resignation and stood up. Jamie Sinclair sat in the passenger seat of a white SUV and looked out at the CBC logo on the hood. They were headed west on the 402, making the trip from London to Mount Bridges. 20 minutes previously, they had landed at the station's London office, and she'd heard the news that had her gnawing on her thumbnail in agitation. The publicity office of the Prime Minister had sent a press release. Wall was going to give a live address, and in the teaser blurb his staff had forwarded, there had been some pretty horrifying information. I guess it's only horrifying if you live in southwestern Ontario, she thought. A nervous cackle of laughter escaped her lips. She clapped a hand over her mouth and darted a look of guilt at Morty. Behind the wheel, he smiled at her in sympathy. I don't blame you for being nervous, he said. I'm nervous too. They'd landed on the network's helipad in London and made their way inside the building. Jamie had thought the footage that they had captured at the Bruce would be of top priority, but then her boss told them that even more dramatic news had been released. An anti-establishment protest crowd was gathering in Mount Bridges in response to the video feed live streaming from the municipal building, which was major news in and of itself. But there was also this, the shocking information they'd been fed from Prime Minister Wall's PR team, which stated that the entire Great Lakes region was due to be evacuated and that there would be conditions. After having seen the landslide damage, she knew why, but it was jarring. As soon as she had heard, she turned to Morty. We have to go back to Mount Bridges. She gripped at his sleeve while he stuffed a powder donut in his mouth. He nodded, tiny flakes of powder sprinkling down onto his shirt, and when he'd finished swallowing, cleared his throat. Just let me grab a travel cup of coffee and another donut. My body is a finely tuned piece of machinery. I can't work without fuel. He patted at his ample belly as he said it, and Jamie found herself smiling in spite of everything. A minute later, they'd been on their way. She wanted to get to where the people were to capture their reaction to the news. She texted Debbie Hathaway, Deb, it's Jamie Sinclair from the news. We're coming back. There's going to be a big announcement from the prime minister. It's bad news, Deb. Where are you? Deb texted back. We're at the municipal building. A massive crowd is here. Jenna is about to make a speech. Damn, we're going to miss it, said Jamie, letting the phone fall into her lap and slumping in her seat. The SUV began to slow. They had reached the collapsed overpass on Hickory Road. They had come to the place where the truck trailer had been parked across the westbound lanes. They could see the message scrawled by Justin across the side. Danger ahead. 
go this way with an arrow. The arrow pointed them around what was by now a pile of concrete rubble, parts of which were sticking up out of a massive sinkhole, yawning darkness on the other side of the transport trailer. It made for quite a scene with the azure twilight and the deserted highway behind it. Morty slowed to a crawl and they stared at each other. It looks like a scene from a movie about the end of the world, Morty said. I can't believe this, Jamie said. If those workers hadn't reconfigured the traffic flow around this overpass, we'd be stranded here and people would be dead. All of those vehicles that were on that bridge, all of those people would be dead and no one would have made their way to safety. They took a moment to sit there and marvel. They had only been gone a few hours. It was truly something to grapple with that the actions they had reported on earlier had led to this that a piece of routine infrastructure, one of the many thousands that underpinned society, had failed so utterly and so completely that it was literally in ruins in front of them. The scene was shocking. They were only five minutes or so from the municipal building under normal circumstances, but who knew how long it would take to get there now? They would have to go the long way around. Morty glanced at her. What next? She sighed. I guess they marched to the municipal building. I texted Debbie Hathaway. She says the mayor is about to make a speech. I'd like to be there, but by the looks of this disaster, I'm afraid we're going to miss it. Morty shrugged. Get a hold of Deb again. Tell her to film it on her smartphone. Or better yet, get that Ricky Jarvis kid to film it. I saw his phone. It runs the same software that our equipment does. I can patch him into the software with the USB and upload his footage when we get there. Morty, you're a genius. Impulsively, she leaned over and planted a smooch on his stubbly cheek. Then she picked up her phone and texted Deb again. The small group from the municipal building still made up a separate cluster, split off by a margin from the throng. Deb and Vic, Jay, Lodi, Wanda, Anderson Arthur, Andrew Summers, Mary, Tamara, and Carrie were grouped around the planter Jenna stood upon while the mass of people faced them from the parking lot. Jay still had the laptop in his arms, broadcasting the live stream. Standing on the wooden planter box, Jenna raised the megaphone. Before she could speak, Deb Hathaway, who had a cell phone in her hand, reached up to tug on Jenna's pant leg. Deb held up the screen. Jenna frowned down at it briefly, then made a shooing motion with one hand. Jenna rolled her eyes exaggeratedly at the crowd, who responded with a chorus of laughter. She passed the megaphone to Deb, who turned toward the crowd, who turned towards the crowd and shouted out through the device. Hey, Ricky Jarvis, Deb called. Standing a few rows deep in the crowd, immediately Ricky's cheeks began to burn. I'm looking for you, Ricky Jarvis. I got a little job for you to do. Where are you, Rick? She called and a few of Ricky's friends began to catcall, elbowing him forwards. Here, said Ricky, stepping out from the ranks of the crowd. I'm here, Deb. What you need? I got a message from Jamie Sinclair, she told him loudly, still speaking through the megaphone. He was only steps away from her, easily able to hear her without the aid of the device, but for the crowd's benefit, she continued using it. You know who that is, don't you, Ricky? The reporter? Deb said innocently, and Ricky's blush spread upwards so that even his ears were glowing. 
Yeah, Deb, I know who it is. What's up? She wants you to film Jenna's speech on your smartphone. Pass free is special. By name, she added, raising her eyebrows to indicate the significance of this. Aw, Jarvis, one of his buddies heckled him. Sounds like you made an impression on the news lady. Suddenly, a portly young man in a blue work uniform broke from the ranks of the crowd. Oh, Ricky, you're so fun. You're so fun. You blow my mind. Hey, Ricky, he sang in a high falsetto, hands on knees, rump bouncing in time. There was a chorus of good-natured laughter at this. Ricky whipped out his smartphone and started filming. Ah, she probably just remembered me because of our little showdown with the boss man at the plant. Still, he looked pleased. On the wooden platform, Jenna took the megaphone back from Deb. If you all are ready, she intoned, looking mock seriously at Ricky Jarvis, I'll proceed. He motioned her onwards. She grinned at him. Looking out over the crowd, however, she she felt the smile fall from her face. She took a few deep cleansing breaths. Just breathe, she told herself. There's nobody else who can say this. For whatever reason, it falls to you. She nodded imperceptibly, then held up the megaphone and began to speak. Ladies and gentlemen, it is with great sadness that I must inform you of a terrible thing that's happened to the land we know and love. Suddenly the mood in the crowd turned serious, the good-natured laughter disappearing like a popped balloon. She saw the worry on their faces and hated what she had to tell them. For those of you who don't know, there's been a massive landslide on the Bruce Peninsula. It's washed a large section of the landmass into the waters of Georgian Bay. The north end of Wyerton and several other towns. She paused here as a sheen of unexpected tears glassed over her eyes. A memory surfaced from the last time that she'd been to Wyerton, flashing through her mind and then gone. She is standing with her forearms resting on the stainless steel shelf that serves as the French fry shack's counter. She hears the good sounds of seagulls and waves lapping, smells malt vinegar, fresh lake air, and sunscreen. How long you been here? She asked the owner. The man in the white paper hat slides open the screen, wedging a fork into her box of poutine. He hands it over, and as he does, a smidgen of gravy drips down the side. She catches it with the knuckle of her index finger and pops it into her mouth. Delicious. He leans on his side of the counter and faces her. 25 years, he says, chuckling, and I'll be here 25 more as long as the arthritis treats me good. That man and his fry shack were probably gone now, she realized, swept out into the crystal turquoise water that had drawn the tourists who sustained them. The blurriness in her vision cleared. She focused in on the crowd once again. They were staring at her, waiting for her to t- continue. And this time when she went on speaking, her voice was raspy with emotion. Are gone. You've all seen the slideshow. The geologist who put that thing together is here. And from what he tells me, what happened on the east coast of the Bruce won't be the only landslide that southwestern Ontario will see this night. The whole region has become unsafe. A murmur went up from the crowd. A few words stood up. She caught them as they rose like punctuation from the general din to float upon the air to where she stood. 
bastards and pigs and greed were among the ones she recognized. She paused to let the murmur subside, aware of the weight of responsibility that had been placed on her shoulders. From what Anderson had said, a life-threatening collapse was imminent. It could happen any moment, even while she was speaking. If it did, then all the lives of all the people present here were on her. The implications were enormous. She felt a hand steal into hers. Looking down, she saw that Lodi stood beside her. He gave her fingers a squeeze. She smiled gratefully at him. Leveling a cool stare at the crowd, she nodded her head minutely, a dead cold serious expression on her face. Cochran and his friends were pigs, all right, and she wasn't going to shy away from calling them that. Not here, not now, not with everything they'd done. A tiny voice spoke up inside her that told her she'd be blackballed. Her career ruined, but she found that she no longer cared. Fuck it, she told that voice inside her head. They're the ones who did the damage. All I'm going to do is call them on it. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks to a bunch of greedy rich people who already had more money than they know what to do with, but still wanted more, this beautiful land that we've been lucky enough to call our own has been destroyed. You've seen the sinkholes in the area. The process has already started. The problem is that as the quakes continue, more of the region is going to be affected. And once it reaches critical mass, it's going to sink. The crowd's response was much louder this time. She saw people frowning, arms crossed over chests, heads nodding, and she knew instinctively that there were some amongst them who were considering the truth of what she was saying, maybe for the first time. It felt good to tell the truth for once, the truth of all the things she'd always thought about the way things worked but never had the balls to say out loud before, because the dynamics of power were such that even if you thought the kind of things that she was saying, you couldn't voice them. You couldn't go against the narrative because of the risk of some kind of unintended consequence, like a professional blackballing or some other such retribution that might impact your ability to survive financially. She felt alive. She felt the power of her words leaving her body to travel into the heads and hearts of all of these people. And she felt their energy coming back to her because she knew that they agreed with her. She was speaking truth for once, and they could feel it resonating. I ask you, haven't we all always known deep down that things are out of balance, that the money and resources flow upwards, that all of society is one giant pyramid scheme meant to enrich those at the top and keep the masses down below them, serving them? Well, the proof of that is here today. It's the landslides and the earthquakes and the sinkholes. It's our beautiful lands being rendered broken beneath us, the byproduct of all that selfishness, the lust of the ones in power prioritizing their own creature comforts, taking everything away from the many, even our very survival. I could lead them, she thought suddenly and felt the rightness of it in her heart. In another life, another time, I could, I could have been the one to lead a nation. She saw that clearly now, and it was electrifying. But these people had to leave. They had to get to freedom. She had to send them all away from her, to scatter in the wind, 
In another life, she thought, this could have been a revolution. She savored that feeling just for a second, looking out over that crowd of protesters and disenfranchised workers who had come from the plant and others who had come for God knew why, most likely because they felt the weight of oppression in some form or another bearing down on them in their daily lives and because something this day that they had personally experienced had soured their view of the status quo. All of them were looking to her because in one day it had become obvious to all of them that the system was broken if events like this could be allowed to occur and she had been the one to tell the truth. She felt that settle into her. She gave herself a moment for the magnitude of that to register, but she had taken on the mayor's role to be a leader, to lead with integrity. And right now the best things for this, these people in this moment was to leave. She had to make them see that. I know that this is hard. I know you want to stay. You want to fight. You want to hold these guys accountable. The system is broken. It's dirty. It's corrupt. And it's exploitative. It's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be a democracy. I get that because I feel it too. Trust me, this day has opened my eyes up to just how broken the system is as well. Even here in the municipality I govern, it's crooked, more crooked than I imagined. But I just found that out today. I believe a better way is possible. I believe that humans were put on this earth to live free, in harmony, with nature and with each other. But that is going to have to wait until the immediate crisis passes. This land here isn't safe. I fear for what will happen if you stay. I fear for your freedom. You've got to go. You've got to take your families and head for safety. Please begin the process. Please prepare to leave. You've got to get outside the evac zone. Now wait just a minute. You can't just say that about our municipality. You're the mayor. The voice was angry, and Jenna saw with no surprise that it belonged to Kevin Perkins, her CAO. Jenna sighed, puffing air upwards so that it ruffled her bangs. Hello, Kevin. Kevin pushed his way to the front of the crowd. He paused in front of Jay Marksman, who was one of his junior staff. Jay held the laptop, still broadcasting on the live stream. Mr. Marksman, is that a municipality of Mount Bridges laptop that you're using to broadcast this insanity? Could you kindly direct me to where you have permission in an approved motion of council to use that device for this purpose? Jay sighed. If you want to fire me, sir, go ahead. It doesn't matter. This place is all going to be underwater anyway. Kevin Perkins bristled. Doesn't matter, he said with indignation. This municipality has a reputation to uphold. We do things via the proper channels here. We are a public entity here deserving of respect. We are the stewards of the taxpayer's money and we need to conduct ourselves accordingly. He puffed up his chest, standing in his three-piece suit, trying to command respect. He somehow failed compared to Marksman who was in a Beastie Boys t-shirt and a zip-up hoodie for his Saturday shift. Jenna found Perkins' stance a little rich. Mr. Perkins, she said, I authorize Mr. Marksman to proceed. 
I also find it a little surprising that you are so concerned about the use of this particular laptop when the entire south-facing wall of council chambers, she paused here to wave a hand upwards at the shadowed-out window behind her, has been obliterated. Further, might I ask where your keys are for the municipal works yard? Thunderstruck, Kevin turned to face her, speechless. Jenna let the moment languish. Mr. Perkins, I'm asking you a question. Where are your keys for the municipal works yard? The master key ring that is to be in your possession? I've had a report that our bulldozer and some of our other equipment are being used today. I don't recall that being authorized. Kevin's face was red. He radiated anger and hostility. But when he spoke, his words were tersely professional. That, he said indignantly, is a staff side matter. It is not an elected side matter to concern yourself with operational issues. Your role is governance. Jenna smiled. Excellent point. She turned to Mary Lee. Mary, might I ask if there was a record in the books that would have approved the roads department's equipment being used today to fill in a sinkhole on municipal roads? From the look that came over Mary's face, Jenna immediately regretted having asked the question. Mary's first reaction was to blanch, then turn to Kevin Perkins with a wordless expression of helplessness on her face. There was thunderous anger on Kevin's face. He stared at Mary intently. Finally, Mary lowered her head. There was not, she said resolutely, sighing. I'll have your job for that. Kevin pointed a finger at Mary sharply, insubordination. Mary nodded resignedly. She seemed to stew on this for a moment, and then she looked up. Well, if I'm going to lose my job for this anyway, I might as well let it all out. Jenna, we knew about the fracking. The staff did. Not all of us, not Jay, just those of us in management or operations. Kevin here, he knew and I knew. We knew because we took the envelopes. We took the cash to look the other way. It started under Mayor Moody and it would have continued under you as well, but you refused them. You alone refused to take the bribes, but what you didn't know is some of us on your staff had been taking them for years. It's not just the elected leadership that makes the wheels turn in the public service. It's the bureaucrats, people like Kevin here and me. We're the ones that keep things moving in a certain way, regardless of the regime change that may from time to time occur on the elected side. When Moody was here, there were a few of us that took the envelopes to keep things moving in the direction that he wanted them to move in, that Fallon wanted them to move in, you know, for the fracking. We approved inappropriate zoning for the feeder plants. We suppressed environmental and water quality reports. We did it all. In short, we hid it from you, Jenna, and we got paid. Mary turned to face her daughter. I'm not proud of this, she said, looking at Tamara sadly, but I could not afford you braces or save for university for you any other way, not as a single parent not on one income. 
I knew about the fracking, yes, but I swear to God, I only went along with it because I had no choice. If I would have resisted, they would have trumped up some excuse to fire me, and the next person to come along would have been put in the same boat. I never thought that it would do all this damage. I'm sorry, honey. I'm sorry that I did it, and I'm sorry that it wrecked our home, and I'm sorry that you have to know. Tamara's eyes were brimming. It's okay, Mom. I forgive you. She put her arm around her mom, and the two of them walked off a little way. Kevin Perkins shook his head. He shut his eyes and put his hand up to his forehead, sighing. Jenna took a moment to let this sink in. She had been the mayor for nine months and hadn't had a single inkling, not one time, that her staff had knowledge of the fracking that was going on right under her nose. The fact that Mary hadn't shared this news with her was jarring. What else don't I know? She took a breath, looked over the crowd of people, of disenfranchised workers from the plant, anti-capitalist protesters, all of them staring at her and wondering how she was going to react to this. She held the megaphone up to her lips. Foolishly, she said, I have been under the impression since the election that I was running this town. She paused here. She took a look at Kevin Perkins, and then she looked with sympathy at Mary Lee, still huddled off to one side, her daughter's arm around her, consoling her. My friends, I regret to inform you that I have not been running this town. Money runs this town. Money is the true law here. We jump through hoops. We go through the motions. But at the end of the day, what we do in the council chambers is a farce. It's a dog and pony show. It's a bland, banal parody of democracy that gets enacted by the players in this little charade we run. But it's just a rigmarole. It's an illusion. Even I was fooled by it. I thought that by turning them down, by pushing back on those brown envelopes that came across my desk, by refusing to be bought to sell my own integrity, I thought that I was winning in the battle of light against darkness. But I was wrong. When I turned down the money, it just flowed to this guy. Here she stopped and held an arm out, holding open her hand towards Kevin Perkins. Ladies and gentlemen, please allow me to introduce you to my chief administrative officer. Please allow me to introduce you to the top dog sunshine lister bureaucrat, the guy that gets paid six figures every year of your tax dollars, the one your elected municipal council hired in good faith to take on this role, whose job was making sure that your municipality functioned safely, that the place you live was stable, who took a sunshine lister salary of your money to keep things running smoothly around here, but for whom that wasn't enough. How much did you take, Mr. Perkins? How much did you take on top of your generous compensation package paid for courtesy of all these people's taxes to grease the wheels for this corruption, for this fracking here that's ruined the place we live, that's made these people refugees? How much altogether in your time in this position and how much did you get this morning when I watched you take that envelope of cash from Donald King and hand him over the keys to the municipal works yard so that a private citizen who has one of these illegal fracking bores on his property 
could use the public's bulldozers to fill in the damage that his structure caused. Kevin exploded with rage. You can't say that. Lies. I'll sue you for slander over this. That story's false. You have no evidence. You've got no... Don't we? Lodi stepped toward him. He held up the digital camera with the screen open to show the photos from that morning. The guy in the Matt Sundin jersey standing at the side of the fissure that had opened up in the road in front of Lodi's farm. The dozer with the corporation of the municipality of Mount Bridges logo on the side clearly visible. Lodi held up the camera to Kevin Perkins and then he turned it to face first Ricky Jarvis's still recording smartphone and then secondly he held it up to Jay Marksman's still broadcasting laptop. I may be just a simple farmer, Lodi said, but this is why I came down here today. Even I know something like this isn't right. I was in the shower when the quake that caused the fissure in these pictures hit. I heard King's truck peel out, my neighbor, and not too long had passed when back they come with the town's equipment, guys in civvies, looking like someone's backyard volunteer deck building crew the kind you pull together from your buddies and your relatives when you want to get some work done quickly on the cheap. So I asked myself, how did guys like that get access to the town's equipment? Came down here this morning to find out, but the mayor here knew how they got access. Jenna was nodding. That's right, Kevin. She smiled almost sadly. You and King didn't hear me. I came in on my bike. I heard voices talking from around the corner in the service alley. I saw the two of you in your vehicles. I heard you talking. I saw you take the bribe from him. I saw you hand the keys over. I saw you, Kevin. I wasn't as smart as these guys. I didn't have the foresight to take a picture, but I saw you and I heard you. And if you're taking a bribe from King to do this here today, then sure as shit, you've been taking them all along to cover up the fracking. He has been, Mary put in glumly. We all have. Goes back about five years now. Sorry, Jenna. Mary gazed at Jenna sorrowfully, then hung her head. This is insane, said Kevin Perkins. You all can't say that. I'll sue you for this. It's slander. What, so you can get even more money? It wasn't enough that you gave yourself a Sunshine Lister pay package off the public dime. You had to go and be corrupt, take bribes to make even more at the cost of all of our homes. And now you want to sue these guys when all they did was call you on it? Ricky Jarvis shook his head. He looked at Kevin Perkins with disdain, and then he cupped a hand around his mouth and yelled out to the crowd, Hey, everybody, rich guy here can't take the truth. He did the crime, but now he doesn't want to do the time. He took the bribes that helped to hide what they were doing. What's cost us all our jobs today? What's destroyed our home? How do you guys feel about that? Agitated murmurings from the crowd. A few called out insults. There was forward momentum as the crowd pressed closer, and it was becoming obvious that some of the bigger guys had more than just disdain for the likes of Kevin Perkins. One advanced toward him menacingly, a large man in a Black Lives Matter tank top with muscles bulging out the sides of his arms. He cracked his knuckles and walked toward Kevin Perkins slowly, with a few more guys behind him, following close. 
Kevin took one look and bolted. He turned his tail and ran literally to his car in the employee parking lot. On the way, he fumbled in his pocket for his keys and dropped them. It made a comic spectacle as he bent, almost tripped, scrabbled around for the keys, looking in terror back over his shoulder to where the burly crowd member and his friends were following. There was a chittery beep as Kevin hit the button to unlock his car, which was a very expensive-looking Audi. That's right, Ricky Jarvis called after him. Turn tail and run. You don't have the stones to face up to what you did. Run to your expensive car that costs as much as most of our homes and skitter out of here, just like your kind always do. You got the balls to rip the masses off, all right, but you don't have the balls to face us when we know. Kevin climbed inside the Audi's driver's seat and slammed the door. A split second later, the car started up and peeled out, tires chirping on the hot pavement. Jenna waited till he hit the road and disappeared. Well, that was exciting, she said. It's not every day you find out your staff is lying to you. She lowered the megaphone and looked out over the crowd. She could see that they were rattled. She could see that they wanted justice, but she had to make them see that they had to leave. They had to get outside the evac zone to freedom, and she had to convince them. Guys, I promise you that when this day is done, we search for justice. We will hold these guys accountable. We've got the footage of all of that on video. We will make them answer for what they've done here. There's a trail of dirty money, and I don't know about you, but I bet that we can follow it from Kevin Perkins right up to the top. But right now, we've got to get you out of here. You've got to leave. You've got to get outside the evac zone. You've got to go now. Run. Take your families and get them to safety. This land is going to flood. It's happening soon, tonight maybe. You've got to go. Please, I'm begging you, before the rest of the highway caves in, before another landslide like the one on the east side of the Bruce makes leaving impossible. Go now while you still have the chance. Please. Why should we listen to you? A voice spoke up from the crowd. You're one of them. You're a racist. We heard what Windeagle said to you on the live stream. You ignored the indigenous. You should be canceled. Jen appeared a little closer and saw with no surprise that it was the guy with the cancel academia sign. She was still trying to make sense of that one, but he wasn't done. You're white. You're the white establishment. You're the mayor here, right? How many people of color you got working here? How many trans people are on your council? Windigal was right. You're racist against indigenous people and you should be canceled. Jenna cast a quick glance over at Carrie Sweetwater and saw that he was frowning. This was wrong. This was a distraction and she felt that very strongly. Sir, she said, I came to this job because I wanted to do the right thing. I wanted to rule with integrity and you're right, I've made mistakes. Not meeting with Windeagle and the other elders, that was a mistake. I see that now, and obviously I have much to learn. But that's what humans do. We make mistakes, and then we learn from them, and we try to correct them. The guy with the cancel academia sign laughed. He was a white guy with mutton chop sideburns and a wiry black beard. That's convenient, he said derisively. 
special snowflake Karen over here says she was wrong. She made a mistake. We should forgive her. I say, cancel Karen. Who's with me? There were a few cat calls from the crowd in support. She could see that they were thinking about it. In little groups of two or three, the crowd broke into clusters, but no one was making a move to disperse. There was much, much discussion and pointing and gesturing, but no one was leaving yet. The man with the mutton chop sideburns had sowed mistrust and doubt, and suddenly Jenna could see that nobody knew how to react. Was she racist? She didn't feel racist. She took a moment to reflect and checked her heart, and the answer that she came up with was that it had been a stupid mistake not to meet with Windeagle and the other elders, but she would learn from it. Compassion and concern for the humans who lived on the reservation, who were getting sick, and who were already disadvantaged and who were being oppressed by the corporations who would bury toxins in their water supply. Compassion for those people who were victimized by that oppression had been one of the more compelling factors in why she'd run in the election. She wasn't racist, and she knew that, but still, something was nagging at her. Jenna sighed into the megaphone. I admit, he's right. I made a mistake in not meeting with the elders, but I ask you, will canceling me solve this problem? Will canceling me get people out of danger? Or will it just silence the only voice who's willing to expose the truth of what these corporations have done? If that's the case, whose narrative does that serve? I made a mistake, yes, it was stupid, and I was wrong. But I also put the truth out there today when nobody else would. I ask you, if I had not done that, would you be here? If I had not been willing to put my professional reputation on the line to risk being blackballed, I would not be standing here talking to you now. And I can see you grappling with that too. Right now, you're confused. You had a man here call me racist and you're trying to decide, decide if that means that everything I'm saying here today is worthless. But I'm telling you, it's not. It's okay to not be perfect. But I'd like to ask this man with the cancel academia sign. You want to discredit me. I get that. But what then is your solution? That's the whole problem with the cancel narrative. It doesn't provide alternative solutions. It's the end of discourse. And you know who that serves? She stared at him hard. Them. It serves the elites. They don't want true discourse happening. That might lead to awareness or eventually a revolution. That might lead to people like me standing up, taking a good hard look behind the curtain, maybe even ripping it down to expose their lies and their corruption and the fact that the emperor has no clothes. You want to cancel academia? She looked at him incredulously. Science and technology are what we will need the most in the future to figure out a way to counter what damage has been done here. We need more people in those fields, not less. More people learning how to use science and technology to solve systemic problems, create new technologies that can be used for benevolent purposes, not just for profit and exploiting resources. We have plenty of people developing that kind of technology now. 
as today's events are making obvious. Cancel academia, she shook her head. That serves them, not you. It's nuts. Mutton Chops made a face at her and brandished his pocket sign, sorry, his picket sign higher. Academia is racist. It's full of rich white people. It's massive underrepresentation of minority groups, of people of color, and it shows. I say, cancel it. In a darkened room, in a nearby city, inside an abandoned downtown warehouse that had been converted into a rave hall, a man sat in a chair and watched this unfold on his screen through the live stream. The man was a ginger, a redhead, and he had an Illuminati tattoo on his forearm that he scratched at impulsively. The protest movement had no leadership, not really, but they did have strongholds, and this was one of them. The man with the Illuminati tattoo was a kingpin of sorts. He scratched at his tattoo again. It was a prison tattoo, and the ink was subpar. It irritated his fair skin from within the surface layers to the point where he scratched at it obsessively in times of agitation or stress. He was feeling agitated at that moment, watching the drama unfold on his screen. He scratched, and flakes of skin floated up before settling on the armrest of his chair. He picked up his phone and sent a text. The man with the mutton chops received it. He looked at his phone. Stand down was the message that it read. He looked up from his screen at Jenna, gave her one more scowl, then turned away and melted back into the crowd, out of sight. Jenna watched him go. That was weird. Something that she'd said might have gotten to him, she supposed, but somehow she found that unlikely. He'll be back, him or someone like him. She took a moment to really look at the crowd, really look at them, and eventually concluded that this was rare. This was a rare gathering of people who all had reason to know firsthand that the root cause of all of their collective distress had been money. Money had made Kevin Perkins and Mayor Moody before him take those bribes. Money had made the consortium of business owners hide toxic waste in a marshland. Hell, money had made Europeans come to North America in the first place and rob the land and the people of its resources. Hadn't Wynne Deagle spoken about that earlier when she talked about the little cloth bags of coins that her people had given up so much to provide white settlers with? Money had been the reason that flag had started up fracking, and money had made them decide to cover it up, and money had made had lost all these people their jobs and their homes. Had there ever been another crowd assembled together that would agree with that sentiment more than the one that was gathered here today, and the one which was starting to fight amongst themselves as she watched, all because of what one man had said, one man who had invoked the term to racism, which she knew in her heart was not justified. All it had taken was one man and one word, and the thing that had brought them all together was being eroded. How could they put faith in what she was saying if she was a racist? She could see them asking themselves that, and each other. She had to acknowledge that, she realized. That was what was niggling at her. She wanted to acknowledge this, and moreover, she realized, she wanted to give this crowd a blessing and send them on their way. 
She looked over the crowd again. They were varied. They were diverse. They were humans. And they were all at risk if the things in Anderson's slideshow came true. All of a sudden, she felt a wave of love sweep over her. A wave of love for the sanctity of human life. A wave of love for the incredible fragility of each human soul which comes to this earth and perseveres and tries to live the best it can. And seeing that crowd of people in that light, Jenna felt overcome for a moment. She took a deep breath and raised the microphone. People gathered here today. The prime minister is going to come online in a few moments and order the evacuation of this area. Please believe me that you need to get going. I will be going up to my office to observe it. But before I do, if I can, I ask you to allow me to give you a blessing. All of you, I'd like to ask the universe to watch over you, to help you all survive this night. She looked out at them, and they stopped moving and talking. Calm silence settled over the crowd. An expectant hush fell. Jenna's mouth firmed into a line. At the back of the crowd, she saw that a white CBC SUV had pulled up and a man and a woman got out. The man had a camera on his shoulder, and as she watched, they quietly began to make their way up to the front. Jenna's voice was melancholy over the loudspeaker. People died today, and a lot more people are going to die tonight if we don't get out of here. I don't want the members of this crowd to be among them. She realized that she was fighting back tears. She took a moment and then continued. Look, I don't care if you don't believe in God. I don't care which God you believe in. I don't care if you believe that the world was created by a room full of monkeys banging away on typewriters. We are all one. We are one humanity, one species, and we are all in this together. She paused here, drawing a deep breath and gearing herself up. I don't even know what I believe anymore, but I know that we're in trouble. These are uncharted waters, waters we've been put in by Kevin Perks and Lawrence Fallon and Aaron Cochran and their like, and that hurts. Being sold out like that hurts. I know it does. So I'm going to ask you right now to put aside your doubts about me. Yes, I made a mistake, but I'm not a racist. We are all one people. If what happens tonight is as bad as what they're saying is going to happen, we're going to need all the help we can get. A few heads were nodding, she saw with some satisfaction, and bolstered, she continued. If you don't believe in a higher power, or if you do, or if you've never given a thought before this moment, I'm asking you to join me. I want each one of you to look up at the sky right now and hold hands with whoever you got standing next to you, and I want you to be silent. She saw that some were beginning to do it. To her left, the small group from the municipal building gripped each other's hands and held them high in a show of solidarity. Lodi James squeezed Jenna's hand, and she smiled down at him in thanks before continuing. I'm going to say a few words, and if you don't believe in what I'm saying, shut your mouth. If you do believe, repeat it in your heart. I want us all to look up at the universe and mean these things, okay? She saw faces in the crowd looking skeptical, but some were looking upwards. 
Their eyes were watching God, she thought randomly. It would have to do. She closed her eyes and dropped her head back. There was a moment's relief, as though the weight of the world had fallen from her shoulders for just a second. Speak from the heart. She heard this voice inside her and tilted the megaphone to the sky. We need help, she said simply, her amplified voice echoing, resonating over the pavement and the silent throng. We've been misled. We've been groomed to believe that our own consumption, our own convenience and entertainment were the most important things that we could ever worry about because purchasing things generates money for the rich ones. We've been pushed into the role of consumerism so long that we fail to appreciate the gifts that we've been given, the beautiful land that we call home and the life-giving water that surrounds it. And now that way of life has led us to this. Jenna felt a pair of tears trickle out from beneath her closed lids and realized that she meant every word of it. It's led us to this moment where we have to choose. We have to choose to leave our homes. We have to choose to put our own survival over everything else and start all over, out in the world outside the evac zone, with nothing but our families and the things we can carry. And we have to acknowledge that the pursuit of some few nameless strangers chasing after money is to blame. Us people here, we didn't do this damage, but the truth is we accepted it. We accepted a spiritually empty way of life in which money was everything. And that's the only kind of world a thing like this could happen in. But we don't have to choose that kind of thing going forward. If this is the end, if this is the last day that the Great Lakes waters run clean, if this land we stand on sinks, well then I choose a different way. I choose to start over, to have a new tomorrow, one in which money isn't everything, one in which every human is cared for equally, one in which the earth is valued in real life, not just on our screens. This isn't really the end, it's just the end of the old way. If you could just be with us, universe, and help us please survive this night. Help us envision and create the kind of future we want for ourselves, where fairness and equity reign, not oppression and corruption. Well then, thank you. Thank you for the gift of living here in the first place. Thank you. And if there's a way, please help us get through this night. Please help us live to fight another day to build a world where money isn't the be-all and end-all. Kindness is. We're sorry. And if you give us a chance, we can do better. We will do better. Amen. She put her head down, afraid to look at them. She felt weary, exhausted. Crumpling, she sat down on the edge of the planter. She had done her best. She felt Lodi drop down beside her, felt his arm go around her pulling her against him, and she let herself sag against him. All right, I'm leaving it there for today. Next up is chapter 18, Truth. And wherever you are in this world, if you're in this massive snowstorm like I am, I hope you're doing okay, keeping positive, being kind to yourself and each other. Stay free. <laughs>